the courage to stand alone for political and economic sovereignty, and the $22.6 million protected species destroying Australia. Coming up on this week's episode of The Citizens Report. Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 4th of November 2022. I'm Robert Barwick and I'm joined today by Citizens Party founder and leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome Craig. Yeah, thanks Robbie. In this week's Citizens Report, Craig, we're going to talk about something that, um, as it happens, you uniquely have done in, uh, in the Australian political landscape. So stay tuned for that, something that only you were prepared to do. And second, we're talking about the latest... Uh, manifestation of the way the banks are protected by the political system in Australia and there's a, a window of opportunity to try and do something about it. So that's a very important part of the show as well. Um, before we begin, let's go through the normal routine. Please, one of the things that, you know, for a show like this to be effective, it needs a lot of viewers because, and think about it, if you're a regular viewer, think about it from this standpoint. You know how we're always um, giving you uh, ideas of what to do to intervene politically. The more people that do it, the more that that can be effective, right? So that means sharing the show. So and you know, YouTube uses an algorithm, etc. So please like the show, um, share the show, subscribe to the show if you're not a subscriber, and if you do, click the bell icon so you make sure you always get new updates and make comments, right? We want the conversation to go on underneath the the show, and let's help get it out as widely as possible. Um, because there's other things to update people on as well, Craig, before we get into the main part of the show. The first thing I just want to mention is there's already a previous show up this week, which is a special co-production mm. between the Australian Citizens Party and the Catter's Australian yeah, Party. Excellent. Robbie Catter and I, Robbie Bowie, you know, two <laughs> Robbies routine. <laughs> I was going to sign off. No, I know. It's good night for him <laughs> and it's good night for me. That's the uh, British roots here, Robbie. That's right. <laughs> um... But look, we had an excellent discussion on a postal bank. The, the cadres are out there on the cult face of the regional Australian economy. They see the need for investment, right? And Robbie was able to describe that um, quite graphically. I was able to give the benefit of our years of research into this issue of public banking. I also tell the story in there, if people haven't heard it before, of the real story behind the Christine Holgate yeah. scandal, right? And how that relates to a postal bank. If you haven't watched it, we get a lot of regular viewers of this show. If you haven't watched that previous show, please watch it. Make, sure, make it a priority. Yes, it goes for a bit less than an hour, but it's worth your while. You'll get deep insights into why this is such a necessary policy. Right? We, don't just, we don't just pick good ideas. They're there for a reason. And so, I think what you stressed with Rob, struck me that you know, Robbie Catter is out there in the back blocks of Queensland as a farmer who's elected member, yep. the leader of the Catter Party in terms of the state. And, you know, he's out there rubbing shoulders with people that are literally having to do... I mean, you know, he was told himself that, you know, you should... Uh, get out. He was, get, yeah, get out of farming, and the banks acted against him. So he goes for his story. But the fact that you are there to be able to give the background to what we've been doing for over 30 years now, the whole history of not just postal banking, but we can, you know, national banking, but how that comes up, the fight around Christine Holgate, this is incredibly important. Uh, to have that degree of collaboration amongst 
you know, the different political groups in this country. Oh, for sure. It's part of the, it's, it's in the microcosm, part of the coalition of support we're building. This is a non-partisan policy. Yep. It's the people versus the banks, literally. Now, yes. that said, good, good news announcement. We've got the Postal Bank. We've got it right here. Yes. Thanks to one of our supporters. And Thanks also, to Richard. Also, Robbie, I don't know whether it's prescient or not, but we've got a glimpse of the first $1 million Australian note. Bank note. Bank note. And is I that think, Ned Kelly on there? Oh, it could be. I think it yeah, is. Yeah, it is Ned Kelly. All yeah. right, so this is a $1 million bank note. And we need that to go into there. Yeah, so, I mean, this is... Uh, you know, a bit of a portent to come in terms of hyperinflation in this country. God forbid. So Richard gave us this, the, the key ring. And a and dollar. A dollar. Good on you, Richard. Um, and what, what he's done is he's taken the Australia Post money tin and he's put the sign Australia Post Bank under there and put the citizen's um, pin on it. So it looks really, looks really good. Let's let that inspire us as to where we're going, right? Um, thank, thanks, Richard, for this symbol of what we're trying to fight for. Imagine being able to go to every town in Australia and see one of those. Yeah, right? And imagine how the people in the boards of banks would feel if they yeah, go to the... There's a long historical record to these things. I mean, the Commonwealth Bank used to put these money tins out yep, yep. years and years and years ago. Yep, as exactly. savings, you know, exactly. piggy banks. Um, and on that, uh, now, so that's, this is a symbol of the postal bank we want. We don't actually have the postal bank yet. But other breaking news is that this last week, the Coobapedi council in South Australia became the latest council to endorse a postal bank. And what motivated, I spoke to the CEO last night, Craig, what motivated them was they have one bank left in town, Westpac, and it's given notice that it's closing in February. And the thing is, Coobapedi is a unique case because it's a, it's a very much a cash economy with the Opal trade, tourists going through, Opals cost a lot of money, they need big cash transactions, right? And, they, and the, West, the, the, the Westpac branch could provide that. Um, there's much more limitations on the Australia Post outlet. Now, the postal, the licensed post office group has some ideas of how to help, but that's not the point. The banks, when you, when you hear about how much cash went through this Cooper branch of Westpac, you know what it proved? It's a very, very profitable bank, mm. bank branch. So why is Westpac Bank shutting a very, very profitable, profitable branch in Cooper Because these guys have an agenda. They want to wean Australia off face-to-face -face banking services, right? Um, because it's, if we go all digital, it's better for them. They get our uh, data and they get a cut of every transaction. That's what, that's what going digital means for the banks. That ain't, so once they get to a certain critical mass, they won't care who they leave behind, right? And it's disrupting Australians all over the place. So they, they were a very fired up council and they quickly rallied to the cause to support the Postal Bank. And we're going to get a lot more of that, right? So what's this space? This campaign is something that, that's... Uh, is the most winnable thing we've ever done. And then two other updates quickly. Um, again, on financial matters, we've just put out a release today, following on from last week's show. We now have an inquiry into ASIC. And in two, fact, we two, have two. 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 <laughs> so there's two different committees. One's the Senate Committee, the Economics References Committee. One's the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Corporations and Financial Services. Um, the second committee, the, the joint one, hasn't released the specifications of its inquiry yet. We just know it's in, on the same terms of reference. The, the Senate one has released. So they are open for submissions until the 3rd of February. Now, that's actually th close to three months to make a submission, right? which is very, very good because what we want, this is not one of those inquiries where we're going to encourage everyone, bombard them with submissions. No, no. 
what we want all ASIC victims to bombard them with submissions. That careful submissions. Take the time, retell your story. But if you're an ASIC victim, or you know someone who is an ASIC victim, right? Make sure they see this. This is the time for them to have their say. Now, one of the things I point out in the release, Craig, is there's two aspects to this that actually make make it not just another useless inquiry, right? One is this is the first proper inquiry into ASIC since the Royal Commission. And the Royal Commission was a turning point, or it should have been, and it would have been if it weren't for what COVID, the disruption of COVID and the Morrison and Frydenberg using that as a smokescreen to throw out all the changes that were going to come from the Royal Commission, right? Go back to protecting the banks. Um, because otherwise, that Royal Commission showed that everybody who defended the banks up until then were liars, Right, the way that Morrison voted 26 times against the Royal Commission, and Labor voted almost that many times themselves against the Royal Commission. Right, this massive everyone said, No, 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 it's just a few rogue, you know, examples, etc. No, we all saw that year how systemic this was. Right, so now we have an inquiry post Royal Commission. The, the denialism has had to, it doesn't, it can't exist anymore. And this, this could be very, very big. And the second one is this is the first inquiry into an issue like this under the new Labor government. Mm. And for nine years, Labor was in opposition when all these inquiries, including the Royal Commission, were held, and they were full of platitudes. Oh, yeah, we've got to be tough on the banks. Look at the government's weak on the banks, blah, blah, blah. Well, now they're in government, and the banks are still the banks, the most powerful lobby in Australia. What are they going to do? They're already going weak at the knees, and I'll give you an example of that in the second part of the show. Um, this is the sort of thing that's going to hold this new government accountable. Right, and, they, and trust me, they're already going weak at the knees. On, on Friday last week, um, Stephen Jones, the financial services minister, was in the press saying he was outraged by this inquiry. He was going to ask the Senate to reverse their decision to hold an inquiry. Today, he's in the press saying, I support this inquiry. In fact, I requested it. Right? Talk about a slippery fish. Um, so that, he's had to adjust because he doesn't have the power to shut this down. Right? And that's an example already. So, very, very important. If you're an ASIC victim, and there's lots of you out there, right? And the main thing I want to appeal to you is get over your demoralization. You, you, you've been through so much. We understand. We've heard your stories, right? And you, it's, it's, it's tempting to think there's no point anymore. I've had enough. And also, some of, some of this is a bit traumatic. Mm. Reliving it mm. to tell, tell a submission is a bit traumatic. We also get that. But, but think of those two things I said. There is an opportunity here that hasn't existed for a long time. Take your time. Write your submission. You don't have to retell your whole story. Write the parts that relate to ASIC and what ASIC did because we want every one of those senators on the committee to not be under any doubt as how much destruction has happened in Australia um, thanks to this rogue financial system and a weak regulator, a soft cop on the beat, letting them get away with it. Right? That's the story we've got to tell. So please take the time. You got to the 3rd of February. Um, let's get this lots and lots of submissions in from ASIC victims. Spread the word as widely as possible. And finally, update before we start. We haven't started yet. No, no this is quite important. There's a lot of things. Quick update on David McBride. Um, we, I did this very long interview with David a few weeks ago. A record. Two hours. Two hours. <laughs> so David is this very brave Australian general who... He didn't, blow, he didn't blow the whistle so much on war crimes as he explained to me, but on the cover-up of war crimes. On the cover-up machinery involving the Australian Defence Force and the politicians that actually makes the good soldiers look bad. 
That's what his motivation was, right? And as he said to me on his show, on the show when I interviewed him, with what he knew and how he what he saw was happening with this cover up, if he didn't blow the whistle, that should that would be a crime. Mm. With like he's 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 um, facilitating a crime by not blowing the whistle. So he leaked these files called the Afghan files to ABC. That led to those raids, etc. And so no one's been charged for war crimes, and they're real war crimes, but the man who blew the whistle has been charged. So David faces a trial where if he loses, he goes to prison for up to 50 years. This is a big deal. He could have cut a deal beforehand and avoid having to do that, right? But he didn't want to cut a deal because he wants to put the system on trial. However, he and his lawyers went to court last week in Canberra to test a certain principle that also would have avoided a trial, but this was important to test. And the principle was whether David's whistleblowing was in the public interest. Because if the judge ruled it was in the public interest, then he'd be protected. There's, there's a public interest protection for whistleblowers. So they turn up. The government had an army of lawyers. Um, this was Thursday uh, last week, the 27th of October. The government had this army of lawyers. David had his lawyers. The, and, then, and then apparently there was a third group of lawyers who were there representing the system, not the government. They were just there to, to make sure that, that uh, the system conformed to whatever, and it, and it seemed to do that. Um, the government had all these witnesses. David's lawyers didn't challenge any of the government's witnesses. David had two witnesses they, whose testimony would have confirmed that his whistleblowing was in the public interest. The government challenged those two witnesses, the legality of hearing those two witnesses on the grounds of national security. The blanket coverall of national security. Oh, we can't, you, those witnesses cannot be allowed to testify for national security reasons. The judge had the right to shut the court and say, well, we'll listen to him in private then. He didn't do that. He ruled in the government's favour, right? They let this national security excuse shut down those witnesses. And so now, um, once that happened, David's lawyers had to withdraw their uh, case, and now it's on in court in front of a jury, which David is happy with. But, but understand the emotions, Craig. You know, you and I got to meet him. He nearly had it, like... Although he, want, although he has bravely put himself in this position of wanting the whole thing on trial, there's still 50 years threat on the end of that, mm -hmm. and he's got a young family and whatever, right? It, it, so not, he was hoping this would have gone his way. It, and he's, it not being, he's not being reckless by any means, Robbie. He's, he's following what he knows to be do the right thing, and he is a, he is a barrister. Yeah. And the point is that he knows what he's doing, and this is a very, very important test. I mean, this is another... Julian Assange case, it's the same issue yep. where the government is using national security to shut down whistleblowers and people who have got things to criticise the government with and should, do, should be able to do so openly and lawfully. But we know that that's not the way things tend to work in this country. Yeah, so please, please follow this case, right? David needs all the public support that he can get. Mm. All right, and that said, speaking of courage, let's get on to the first segment. The courage to stand alone for political and economic sovereignty. And this is going to be challenging to viewers, but I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad that it is. Right. So let me, let me tell the story this way. The Australian newspaper has a correspondent named Will Glasgow. And um, he put out some tweets the other day on the 29th of October. And um, uh, his Twitter handle, Craig, is a sort of unfortunate one. It's called at WMD Glasgow. That's it. Those are his initials, clearly. But WMD was the, weapons of, was the weapons of mass destruction that weren't found 
when we invaded Iraq that his newspaper campaigned for. In a conspiracy, his newspaper, Rupert Murdoch, was involved in a conspiracy with some of the most evil people in America and the United Kingdom to destroy any opponents of the Iraq war and invade on a lie, right? That's the paper that he works for. So there's my little rant about him. Put that aside because that'll come up in a second. Um, so he went through, in a sort of a snide way, the fact that China's Xinhua newspaper was reporting all the letters of congratulations that were sent from around the world to China's president, Xi Jinping, on his third term as the Secretary General of the Communist Party of China, right? Which also makes him the president of China. So um, the first one he reported was uh, India's, we'll put this on the screen, this is the tweet. India's Prime Minister Modi in today's Xinhua list of congratulations. Now, so let's describe Modi for a second. Remember, you, the viewer, are supposed to be thinking that China is this dictatorship and this was a sham election, blah, blah, blah. Narendra Modi is the most popular leader of the world's biggest democracy. Forget your opinion of Modi. That's technically who he is. As the Prime Minister of India, he's won the last election. So by definition, he's the most popular leader of the world's biggest democracy. That's India and that's Modi. He's also one of Australia's quad partners. We have this quad arrangement, uh, India, Japan, United States and Australia. We're, there, we're this team that's going to contain China, right? He's one of our partners in that. And we love talking about that. And you'll, you'll, you'll hear politicians say, yeah, stuff China, we should be doing more with India, etc." right? Because they're a democracy. They're wonderful. Well, our friend Narendra Modi, the most popular leader of the world's biggest democracy, has sent a message of congratulations to Xi Jinping. Good on him. Then Will did this tweet. Um, well, I actually did this one first. Sorry. Um, this is the snide thing. So just, anyway, it doesn't really change, but this is, this is the one he did first. For more than a week, Xinhua has run these daily lists of foreign congratulations to Xi on his election as the Communist Party's General Secretary. Today's features two of Australia's key Indo-Pacific partners, Korean President Yoon and Japanese Prime Minister Kishida. So, the Prime Minister of Japan, another one of our quad partners, and a democracy, and, and South Korea is a democracy, sent letters, messages of congratulation to Xi Jinping, mm. right, on his election as a th for a third term as the General Secretary of the um, Communist Party of China. So we've got two of our quad partners have sent this such a message. And then there is this. <laughs> Will Glasgow, finally, congratulations from Australia. So this is the only congratulations that came from Australia. In today's Xinhua list, the message sent by the leader of a fringe conspiracy party, an offshoot of the LaRouche organisation. So let's unpack that. First of all, he's talking about us. He's talking about Craig Isherwood, the National Secretary of the Australian Citizens Party. Will Glasgow, Craig, doesn't want to use our name. No. Right? In fact, this has been a pattern of his for a while. The Australian, for a long time, we've, you know, we've been at this for 30 years. You wrote an article this week about the 30 years of the office, the full-time office of the Citizens Party this month, or last month, it was the anniversary. We know for a long time how much the media's main approach to our party was to black us out, yep. right? Um, 
for a long, for, for, in recent times, Will Glasgow has attached, attacked us a bit in the Australian. Lately, he's taken to attacking us by not mentioning our name. The party of which he dare not speak its name, the Australian Citizens Party. He keeps calling us, because of our associ historical association with Lyndon LaRouche, um, the fringe conspiracy party, an offshoot of the LaRouche organisation. And I have to comment on conspiracy as well, because, yeah, there is, we do talk about conspiracies, namely the one I just talked about earlier, the conspiracy involving his boss, Rupert Murdoch, with the most evil people in the United States, the United Kingdom, to literally blow up the world and introduce this 20 years of regime change mass murder. That's the conspiracy. He might have been, he might have been you know, barely out of toilet training when it happened. I don't know how old Will actually is, right? But nevertheless, that's who he chooses to work for and attack the party that fiercely campaigned against that and that kind of evil that's done in the name of democracy, etc. And yes, we do call it a conspiracy. By the way, um, the real conspiracy then was, you know, the, the, uh, the, they, they would attack, always attack us as conspiracy theorists, but, you know, what was inventing the whole idea of weapons of mass destruction? Um, so what he's saying is that... You, Craig Isherwood, the National Secretary of the Australian Citizens Party, is the only p political leader in Australia who has the guts to send the same, a similar message to the General Secretary of the Chinese Communist Party and the President of China as our quad allies. No other political party leader in Australia, not the Prime Minister, not the opposition leader, of course not him, the jerk, not the Greens, nobody has had the guts to do what you've done. And remember what we're talking about. India, Craig, has, I looked it up, they have like a 70 to $80 billion trade both ways with China, right? Combined 70 to $80 billion. We have a $120 billion surplus, just the surplus that we enjoy from China. The money we make as a country every year from our trade with the world's biggest economy is 120, it's so much in our favor, it's not funny. You are the only political leader in Australia with the guts to stand up to the Americans and the Brits, who we are bowing to by not sending a message to, Mo to, to Xi, on behalf of Australia's economy, on behalf of Australia's exporters. So why don't you, for the, for the viewer's benefit, read the message that you sent to Xi Jinping. Yeah, Robert, this message is consistent with our 34 years. We've always supported the BRICS. Brazil, Russia, India, China, South, uh, South Africa, development. You know, I've been to Russia. I participated in the Civil BRICS Forum. Yep. Our economic development program is peace through economic development. It's synonymous and, um, you know, consistent with the idea of Xi Jinping's win-win solutions, yep. the idea of the Belt and Road Belt and stuff. Road. So this was a, a natural uh, sense of, you know, great, we've still got a, we've got a leader coming in here who is elected. Every person in China has the ability to, to, to participate in the elections. It's not the same sort of system that we have, but it is an election process, and most ignorant Australians have no clue as to how that system works. Well, remember, one of the reasons that I was glad we did it is because I had just seen Tony Abbott a little while ago, two Prime Ministers ago, <laughs> when, when Liz Truss was... was um, elected just by the... Xi Jinping was elected by the Communist Party of China, right? Um, Liz Truss was elected by the Conservative Party of the UK to mm. be Prime Minister, mm. right? And so just by that, Tony Abbott tweeted her a, a congratulations, saying congratulations on getting the world's second most important job. 
Now, that either meant the President of the United States was the most important or the Queen of England was the most important because she was still alive. The, I suspect he meant the President of the United States. Maybe he meant the Queen because he's such a sycophant monarchist. But the idea of the British Prime Minister would be the second most important job in the world when, by any definition, this guy's job is one of... If there's a top two, that's in the top two, right? Yeah. So we thought the least Australian political leaders could do was congratulate him. And forget the third term rubbish. Yeah. One of the greatest political leaders in the last century broke protocol and served a third term. Mm. And he saved the world by doing it. His name's Franklin Roosevelt. Look him up, right? He literally saved the world by doing it. Um, and he took on the, his hater because he took on the bankers, etc. So that doesn't hold any truck with us. Whatever she did, he did it entirely legally. So we sent this letter. And we sent it in Chinese, Robbie, because, you know... It's, That's right. <laughs> we do have the capacity to be able to, you know, send stuff like that, That's which is great. So... So the letter reads, Dear President Xi, on behalf of the Australian Citizens Party, I congratulate you on your third term as General Secretary of the Communist Party of China and President of the People's Republic of China. Under your leadership, China has made enormous program, a progress in economic development, including the construction of the largest high-speed rail network in the world, poverty alleviation that has achieved an end to absolute poverty, and scientific and technological breakthroughs that benefit all of humanity, including the singular achievement of being the first nation to land a spacecraft on the far side of the moon. On the world stage, your administration has created the Asia, Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank and the Belt and Road Initiative, both of which have been transformative for the world economy. Your visit to Australia in 2015, at the invitation of then Prime Minister Tony Abbott secured the comprehensive strategic partnership between our two nations, under which Australia has benefited immensely from China's progress in economic development in terms of bilateral trade. We welcome your statement of China's overall development objectives for 2035 and its people-centred commitment to science and innovation, economic growth and a modernised economy and ensuring the people the people lead better and happier lives with a higher disposable per capita income. China's achievements in these areas have already been remarkable. As Australians, we look forward to seeing what China can continue to achieve under your leadership into the future and will continue to encourage our nation's participation in and collaboration with your nation's peaceful economic development efforts. And that's, of course, we sent that off and it was received and obviously published. But that in a nutshell, encapsulates what we actually believe. And, you know, Robin, and always have. And always have. And I want to say, you know, there are very pathetic individuals in, in organisations like Aspie and so forth that stand up there and our goddamn government pays them for this advice. They're not elected, right? They're paid possibly six-figure sums to stand up there and spew out absolute crap which isn't backed up by anything. And the Australian public has a, a misfortunate habit of believing these guys yep. and it makes my blood curdle to see an elected leader in charge of 1.3, 1.4 billion people you know, pushing forward on economic policies that our country desperately needs and these buggers, excuse the French, stand up there and berate him because he's, he represents a policy direction of a non-neoliberal policy direction that we should be pursuing and if people, you know, are sympathetic to Xi's uh, opponents and enemies, 
Well, that's going to send us into world war with China yeah. because that's the directionality that we're heading. And that's why if you look at our Citizens Insight program, Craig, especially this year, we have done so many interviews with people with real expertise on the different aspects of this. John Lander, the ambassador on the real danger of where this can end up the way we're going. Jack James, who not only lived in China and got to experience a side of China that totally blew her assumptions away as an, as an Australian, brought up on Australian propaganda, but she then debunked, totally debunked Aspie's rubbish, right? To the point where, um, you know, when I tried to ask a question on her behalf at an event, I was shut down because they couldn't answer it. D.A. Wang, the former senator for Western Australia, who is Chinese, he came to Australia when he was 23. He under, as a Chinese person who understands China, he understands how much of this is absolute rubbish. And one of the things that one of the points that Dio has made um, to me is this anti-neoliberal path that you describe in China. <laughs> Remember a couple of years ago, I said this at a seminar. It is not good, in one respect, that Australia is so dependent on another country like we are on China. But we are so lucky that the one country we are so dependent on is China, mm. because its progress has driven our economic growth. And in fact, it's even made cheap loans into Australia discreetly to allow Australian businesses to flourish, right? Because that's good for us and good for them. China does everything win-win. We haven't been progressing. We shut our economy down every time, we, every time we can. And the really impressive thing about Xi's speech was this people-centered development. That's what he called it, because that's what it is. The track record is there. In the time you and I have been at this, of politics, we have seen industry after industry in Australia shut. We have seen people's lives disrupted like crazy, right? We have seen the government pointing to 20 years of uninterrupted economic growth, 25 years of uninterrupted economic growth, 28 years of uninterrupted economic growth, saying how great it is. Meanwhile, we've had we went from 12 hospital beds per thousand down to three, right? This sort of stuff, right? Where We've got queues of people outside of hot... We're not improving the system. It's, it's collapsing in front of our eyes. Couldn't handle a, um, a crisis like COVID. You know, we're, we're reaching a phase where neoliberalism is on the nose, Craig, and you see some turning points, and we're, we're very much a part of pushing that. But the neoliberal system sent us backwards. And in that period, China's lifestyle, living standards, outlook as a country went forward in leaps and bounds, Right. And the people benefited, not some plutocracy at the top and everyone at the bottom was just like you see pictures of the United States, right, with absolute poverty at the bottom spreading and this massive plutocracy at the top that just gets away with whatever they want to. The people in China have benefited immensely from this administration, as have we, yeah. right? Yeah. And the fact that um, you, there's one political party in Australia that was prepared to stand up for Australia's economic interests, and our political sovereignty. The fact that Craig was issued as the only person who did it is because everybody else is afraid of the, the Americans and the British and the media they controlled through people like Murdoch. That's why Will Glasgow does a tweet like this. He's saying to the other parties, stay in line. That's why when the ambassador of China went to the National Press Club, these, these jerks lined up in a row to bash him. They weren't sending a message to him. They were sending a message to the, to the new government, do... This is how you'll be treated if you get better relations with China, right? There's been a strategic shift by the Brits and the Americans, and we're supposed to go along with that because we have no sovereignty. We, this party, represent sovereignty for Australia. And that's right. I want to say something on that because, look, it's been 34 years since we, January, basically, 1988, when 
I was part of a small group of people in Kingaroy that started the Citizens Electoral Council, our you know, previous name. One of the key issues back then was the issue of sovereignty and being yep. smashed. That's why we stood a candidate in the Baramba by-election and got him elected, is because people were being smashed by all sorts of circumstances. And you know what was really strange? Is that as our influence started to grow, I mean, we were on the Sunday program, we were on Cunna Affairs programs, talking about the government is no longer representative of the people. The yeah. so-called great democracy, well, you go and talk to people who have been smashed by the banks. Yeah. They're not feeling too, too, too much of living in a democratic country because, in effect, you've got a, a, a dictatorship amongst the banks dictating how people are going to live. So we were standing up and saying, no, we don't want this. There's too much power in the hands of elected politicians in the sense of the, their agents for the banks. Not that yeah. elected politicians yeah. don't yeah. have the role. But then one day I wake up in the morning and all of a sudden, me, at 31 years of age, has become a neo-Nazi, extremist, right-wing, fascist, anti-Semite. Some of that stuff I had to look up in the dictionary to find out what the hell are they talking about. Right, uh, but that's, this is what happens, and this was done by the major media in, co you know, in collusion yep. with each other, and uh, consequently, and this has meant that over the years, you know, these, fl these throwaway tags, which they use, there's no proof behind any of this. Yep. The far-right conspiracy group, what's that supposed to do? It's supposed to elicit fear in people. Oh, they're a far-right conspiracy group. If anyone knows anything about history, histories are full of conspiracies. One side wanting to take over another side or influence another side. That's what the nature of politics is. It's people conspiring to get policies through. So what they... Uh, and so you know, when, when you stand up, or when you've had the 34 years of this sort of crap... Yeah. What I really like You're to do not is intimidated focus. by little weasels like Will no Pascoe. scribblers like this for you know, <laughs> warmongering rags. Forget it. What I like to do is, is as we like to do, is to praise and recognise real leadership. Yep. And that's what we will continue to do. And that's why you know, thirty years after we you know set up the, the Melbourne office, we're still here and we're growing. And and thanks to the people on this, you know, the, the listen to this show, the participate in our campaigns. We're going to continue to do that. So if you if you're one of those CEC Citizens Party supporters that likes everything else, but oh, you're wrong on China, take it up with Narendra Modi and the Prime Minister <laughs> of Japan. <laughs> All right, let's move on, Craig. Yep. Um, and we didn't do that for self congratulation, by the way. We 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 want to call out cowardice wherever we see it. And I, and I think Robbie, you know, I have written an article about 30 years in Melbourne on the back of the Australian Alert Service oh, yeah. this week, and people, you know, should. Should get a copy of that. Um, yeah, call, if you want to see Craig's two-page um, wrap-up of how the the the, uh, the the national office came about, yeah, call in and get a copy of that. This this membership issue of our alert service is actually um, really brilliant. I'm going to we're going to now cover one of the subjects here that's on page three. There's a lot of different things in this uh, issue, though. We we can't go. We don't have all the time. So definitely, um, get, and get a subscription. If you're not a subscriber to this, this is how the Citizens Party funds its activities, and as you can tell every week, we have a lot of activities. I, I do want to point out, Robbie, and you know, give a shout-out to Melissa Harrison's article on Taiwan. Yes. Because this is the, what we do in the alert service, which we don't have an opportunity on this show to do, is to go through and document yep. the in strategic detail. detail of what we talk about. The Citizens Party won't put stuff out unless we have done the work on it. Yep. And <clears throat> we haven't done you know, That's what we do for, for, uh, it's for many years. It's excellent. Okay, so moving on, um, let me get my notes here. This this uh, next segment, the next, the, sorry, the twenty two point six million dollar protected species destroying Australia, and what we're talking about is um, 
Uh, we put out a release this week. You can see some of these details on, on our, this, this part's on our website. What do bankers get for $22.6 million? Liberal and Labor protection from accountability. We took the protected species of banks. $22.6 million, Craig, is the price tag. That's how much the combined bank donations to Labor and Liberal over the last decade add up to. Thirteen and a half, well, nine and a half, um, what is it? Nine and a half million dollars to the Labor Party, a bit over $13 million to the Liberal National Coalition. Because what's happened is, I referenced Stephen Jones uh, before, um, and the way he uh, was slippery about and basically flipped, uh, pretended he wasn't opposed to the, uh, the ASIC inquiry. They're now in power, and Stephen Jones is breaking promises like crazy. And we're going to keep the glare on this, the spotlight on this guy, um, because it's unacceptable, right? Like I said, they, they were in uh, nine years of platitudes from Labor about the banks. Now they're in a position to do something about it. They're slightly disarmed, though, because the president of the Australian Banking Association is one of them, a former Labor Premier, Anna Bly, a confidant of our Treasurer, Jim Chalmers. Well, sorry, you're not going to get away with this, right? If you, if you think you can talk with the talk and then do nothing in government, well, prepare for um, you know, torches and pitchforks on your lawn. So this is the, a couple of things I just want to highlight in terms of broken promises. Um, in the stuff we did last year and earlier this year with the Sterling First victims, we demanded compensation. They were failed by ASIC, they should be compensated by ASIC. The government just, and the opposition said, no, 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 um, what, the, what we have is this compensation scheme of last resort. And that's what's supposed to compensate victims after their cases have been tested. And the comeback was, well, hang on, these particular victims, Sterling First victims, they were not, um, they're not covered by the compensation scheme of last resort because even though all they knew is they were, they were paying rent in advance, the scam they got sucked into, which ASIC should have known, was a managed investment scheme. And the compensation scheme of last resort doesn't cover managed investment schemes. And of all the financial victims in Australia, Craig, 95% of them, 95% are victims of managed investment schemes. And if you don't have them, victims of managed investment schemes in a compensation scheme of last resort, you're going to cover hardly anybody, mm. right? Now, the thing with the compensation scheme of last resort is it's going to be industry-funded. So if you don't include managed investment schemes, that's a much cheaper bill for the banks and the insurance companies, right? And this is the issue. So... We'll put on the screen this um, Facebook announcement from back on the 4th of April, or in early April. During the election campaign, Stephen Jones goes over to Western Australia to meet the Sterling victims. And in their excitement, they said, come to this event. And the people who put out this ad said, Stephen has already indicated, should Labor be elected, managed investment schemes would be included in the compensation scheme of last resort. And what's happened now? They put up the bill, no managed investment schemes including the compensation scheme of last resort. So another person I've interviewed on Citizens Insight last year actually, Peter Johnson from the Australian the Association of Independently Owned Financial Professionals, which are the financial planners that work independently. They don't, they're not paid by the banks. He put in a submission to the compensation scheme of last resort inquiry and he raised, it's a very explosive submission because he, his organisation went through the Electoral Commission returns and counted how much money the banks have donated to both major parties. He raised this. And I just want to read you his quotes. He said, 
The recent political backflips by both major parties over implementing CSLR in its original Hain-recommended form, because it was Kenneth Justice Hain who said all victims from 2008 onwards in managed investment schemes should be included, and that adds up to 200,000 victims who've lost $40 billion. That's what that adds up to. So that's what the Hain-recommended form means. He said, continues, raises serious concerns that anti-consumer vested interests are trying to change the operational format of CSLR to suit their own position rather than that of the consumer. The only stakeholder to benefit from these diluted change benchmarks would appear to be the banks. And then he revealed how much money the banks have donated and then he proposed two questions should be asked. One, do these political donations to the political parties have an influence on political outcomes, such as, for instance, in the proposed CSLR amendment outcomes? Two, would there be a threat to continued political contributions if the CSLR amendments were not delivered? He said, we will leave it to others to reflect and decide on the relevance of these proposed questions. Can I answer that one? <laughs> One word answer? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> now look, this is this is this is the issue, right? Because why do banks shut down branches? Because they're not charities, apparently, Craig. No. Right? We're not a charity, right? We're not going to run a branch that's, that that it's costing us money. They even though they're not really costing them money. So why do banks donate to political parties, Craig? They're not charities. Yeah. Right. Okay. They, they need favors. Exactly. They need political. They need political favors in terms of. You know, the fact that the Labor and Liberal Party run multi, multi-million dollar campaigns, you know, 50, 60 yeah, million dollar campaigns in election, where does that yep. money come from? Yep. They don't do what we do, Robbie. No. I mean, our funding is significant in terms of small parties, but it comes from not... Ours is entirely democratic. Not, not Yeah, totally democratic. Not from, say, 10 not, or 15... Not government, not unions, not big business. Not five or 10 banks. Yep, yep. Right? About 15,000. Yep. Individual contributions from you know thousands and thousands of people. Plus, you know, remember you you're the one who I think first explained to me the model. The bank, the, the the banks, the parties are sort of always in the red. They get all the votes from the, yeah. the, the money they get from the government for each vote at election. They pay off the old debt, and then go to the bank and borrow another couple of hundred million dollars for the next election cycle. Well, this is this is this, think about this for a minute, Robbie. The banks are giving the parties this. The banks know. Anyone that's in politics know that the coalition's going to get 30, 35% of the primary vote and the Labor yep. Party will get the same. Yep. The government pays something like $2.80 per vote. Do the maths. Yep. Right, so therefore, that's like a guarantee. They can sign, the parties can sign over a note to say, on the basis of the expected vote, we are going to get $50 million from the government. Therefore, would you advance us $50 million yeah. so we can run our election campaign? Now, what happens if the government of the day starts to say to the banks, no, we're going to rein you guys in, we're not going to allow you to have the free reign? Yeah. Don't you see there's a little bit of a blackmail to say, well, if you don't Hello. do this, we're not going to be able to, uh, we're, not, we're not going to be interested in funding your election campaigns. Yeah. And I'll tell you why, that's like, that's like the, the, the nuclear flashing lights coming on to the political parties, of course, they're not going to cross the banks, and that's why even if you even if you still prefer a major party over most of the minor ones, you should always vote for them second, not first. They don't at get least the money. make them not get the money. Yeah. Okay. And that that'll really make them squeal because that's you know, this the, the, the electoral funding. We've never got electoral funding, Robbie, because we've 
funded our own campaigns significantly by raising donations from people that want to see only, real change. Only Australian individuals. Yep. Now, um, so Craig, this, is, this next part is, is even more enraging. Remember after the global financial crisis, no banker went to jail. That's right. They were too big to jail, right? And they literally said that. The, Obama's Attorney General said, oh, you can't bring criminal charges against banks because it, it, might, it may um, cause another financial crisis. Too big to jail. And that, not only did they not send them to jail, they gave them their bonuses. And that was really infuriating at the time. Well, what's happened as a result of the Royal Commission in Australia, this question came about because banks are such big organisations and you get the CEOs on the stand, they say, well, I didn't know. I didn't know that we were charging fees for no service and all this kind of stuff, right? So they brought in this law called the Financial Accountability Regime. And when Treasury... So the, the Royal Commission handed down its report in uh, February 2019... January 2020, as part of the, the government's, this was fr under Frydenberg, um, that was, that's when they were still not in denial. They were still saying, okay, we've got to implement the recommendations of the Royal Commission. January 2020, the Treasury said, this is, we're going to have this bill called the Financial Accountability Regime, and it's going to include civil penalties for bankers, for bank executives. Now, let me explain that. Banks are all, bankers can all already incur criminal penalties if they're caught stealing money, ordering their staff to steal money, that sort of thing, right? Civil penalties was, was included so that when, banks, when bankers are not stealing money outright deliberately, but when they're looking the other way while they're, they're making money from fees for no service or charging fees for dead people, right? Or the other one, one lawyer made the comparison to Westpac's... Um, uh, contravention. Remember the massive fine it got for the um, anti-money laundering con contravention, right? They, 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 they ignored the anti-money laundering requirements. Um, and they had been warned, like for, for years in advance, that they, were, that they were in contravention, they just ignored it. So under those circumstances, because the bank is making money from these decisions, and the bankers are getting bonuses from these decisions. Under those circumstances, they said there will be civil penalties for bank executives that will be um, 5,000 penalty points, which adds up to $1.05 million, or three times either the benefit derived or the, or the, or the, um, the, uh, the detriment avoided, whichever is the greater, right? That, that bank executives will be fine. That was in the, that was in the bill, going to be not, in the bill. We're not talking about local branch managers here no, of we're local talking about banks. The, we're talking about you know, the, the hidden powers inside these large institutions. The decision makers, the accountable, in, in, they call them the accountable persons. Yeah, which right? means that these people know, they already know that they can get away with it. Yeah, they're on, and they're on millions of dollars. Yeah, and they know, right? and they've got clever lawyers there that can slip and slide and so forth. So this is the least they can do. These civil penalties is the least they can do, yeah. literally, right? So what happened? Treasury released this on January 2020, then COVID hit. And as soon as COVID hit, Frydenberg and the banks were like, ah, we can get away with lots of stuff here. And they did. They used COVID as a smokescreen to just make all kinds of changes. They essentially scrapped all the, all the intent coming out of the Royal Commission, including this. And they, they, they have produced a bill which both parties are going to try and ram through at the end of this month in the parliament, the financial accountability regime without civil penalties. The only ones jumping up and down about this Ironically, the only, the only group outside of what we're doing now that is attacking this protected species is the Greens. <laughs> They're the ones that usually protect protected species. 
they, they are honourable enough on this question that the real protected species of the banks, they're going after them. And they're saying that they even they even did a deal, or they, they even offered, um, what's his name, Jones, if you... If you don't want this Senate inquiry into ASIC, because there was already two, there was already another inquiry, right? so they weren't they weren't blocking an inquiry. They were going to block the second one. They said, put civil penalties back in that bill. You want us to block that inquiry? Put civil penalties back in that bill. And Jones refused. They, the new Labor government, is absolutely doing exactly what the Liberals did and protect bankers from basic personal accountability, so that there'll still be civil penalties for the bank in the form of massive fines. But you, the shareholder, pay those fines. And you, the customer, when they add more charges on you to pay for those fines. The bankers who make the decisions, who spend a few years at a bank and then move on to another job and take a big fat bonus with them, scot-free, no accountability. Right? This is what these two major parties are colluding to do right now. So one of the reasons we're raising this, Craig, is we actually want to try and do something about this. Right? We've got a few weeks. I'm raising it now. Pay attention to the Citizens Party's um, website. We'll put out, at a certain point in the next couple of weeks, we'll put out a call and instructions of who to start calling in the Labor Party to demand they include civil penalties in this bill. We're going to rock this place. The last time, last week in the report, Citizens Report, they, they, the feedback was there's nothing like, there's no one like the Citizens Party to melt the phones down. We're going to do that over this issue, right? Because this is unconscionable. All you've got to do if you're old enough, remember what it was like post-2008 when all those bankers got off scot-free. And these two parties are so beholden to the banks and the superannuation funds that they intend to do that again. Yeah, Robbie, uh, Albanese, Anthony Albanese got up at a conference and had a one line that we should report, report it, right? It said, you know, the Labor Party represents a light on the hill and all the Liberals can do is glow in the dark. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm sorry, there's no point in having a light on the hill when you're full of fog. Yeah. When the yeah. fog is around, yeah. the light right. means nothing. You can't see it. That's right. And that's what's going on here with the Labor Party. They might, they've got the potential to be the absolute light on the hill, but the fog of the influence of these powerful lobby groups are creating a fog which yeah. is upsetting uh, any real strategic change to policy that we thought we were hoping that Albanese would come in. So... You know, it's really going to be up to uh, up to the our, our supporters and people to try and blow that fog away by saying, no, 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 you got the right policy, or the, you had the right policy in opposition. Now get back to yeah. what you said. Yeah, we have to provide. We have to inject the steel in their spine. They're not gut. They're, they're too gutless to stand up to the Brits and Americans on foreign policy. They're too gutless to stand up to the banks. The public can't accept it. So what, this is what happens. The public will go, see, nothing ever changes. And then you go back to sleep. You say, I'm going to do something else. This is, you get demoralized. No. Yes, you see the behavior predicted. Don't accept it. You meet that bad behavior. You meet that gutlessness. And, and let's, let's change the dynamic for once. Instead of us taking the pressure off, put the pressure on. And this is, these, these, the, the ASIC inquiry, this, this intervention in the civil penalties issue, etc. Um, the general fight for the for the postal bank. These are the ways we'll do it. Yep. All right, Craig. Thank you very much. This yeah, has been a great you, show. Yep. Appreciate you having us on this um, 30th anniversary thing. Yes. Has been good. Uh, thanks to the viewer for tuning in. Get on the website and look at the things that we've uh, talked about, and you'll see some of the links below. And see you next week for more of the Citizens Report.
authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.